Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. The Waco History Podcast is sponsored by Brotherwell Brewing on Historic Bridge Street in Waco. Cross the Brazos and Waco Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn Cross the Brazos and Waco I'm safe when I reach San Antonio All right, welcome back to the Waco History Podcast. Uh, I've got a special guest with me today who, who writ, wrote a book years ago that I've always enjoyed and wanted to have him on and he's he's agreed it's it's Todd Copeland a colleague over there at Baylor he's a director of advancement marketing uh, division of marketing and communications at Baylor University he's had several jobs at Baylor over the years we could get into that Todd if you want to get into that <laughs> a long history 30, 32 years this 32 year. years yeah. at Baylor but we're here to talk about a very fine book uh, that that Todd put together in it's been about 10 years ago uh came out in 2007 okay yes yeah, so mm-hmm. about 15 years ago uh, the Immortal Ten by Todd Copeland, and it is the story uh, of a, uh, well, I, I don't want to spoil it. If you have not heard the story before, if you're a Baylor freshman, freshman or first year, you've probably heard the story. And if you've been around Baylor a while, you may have heard the story. But I think a lot of folks locally don't know mm-hmm. the story. And so thankfully, Todd wrote this book, and he's here to uh, talk to us about it. So thanks, Todd, for joining oh, us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. Um I will, uh, I, I guess a, a great place to start is you just tell us the story. I mean, you, you've told this story before, you've research, researched it, you spent time in the archives looking, I know you've presented on it. Maybe you could just take us through and tell us the story of the Immortal Ten. Sure. Well, it is a central tradition of Baylor University and has been ever since the accident happened in 1927. But people who are generally interested in sports, uh, you know, find it a topic of great interest and also it has a lot of uh, Waco history embedded in it. Although truly it's a Texas story mm-hmm. uh, because the students who died in that accident came from across the state. Uh, the majority were Wacoans um, because most students at Baylor back then were from Waco. But um, what happened that day was, it, the day was January 22nd, 1927. It was a Saturday um, and the Baylor basketball team was to travel to Austin to play Texas that night in a basketball game. So they left uh, Waco about 8.30, and when they were going through Round Rock, which is where the highway back then uh, went through on its way to Austin, it was not I-35 like we know today. It was a very roundabout uh, system of roads that constituted the highway. It took about three hours to drive there. when they were going through Round Rock, it was, a, and I should add that it was very cold and misty that day. There was mm. a front coming through, so the driving conditions weren't great. There was mud splattered on the windshield, um, and when they went through Round Rock, it went across an open grade crossing um, on May Street, and um, the driver, well, really everyone on the bus did not see or hear a train that was coming from the west. It was a passenger train called the Sunshine Special. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was coming from the west, um, traveling eastward. 
And it was going very fast, about 60 miles an hour, which was a little faster than normal, um, as came out later in the litigation that followed this accident. Uh, but the folks on the bus did not see or hear the train until they were very close to the track, so close that the student who was driving the bus felt like he could not bring the bus to a halt in time. And so he thought the best chance for them to survive was to get across the tracks faster. So he accelerated and almost made it across. And we can get into more details of what happened. And, mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, we can get into more details about what happened after the crash or in the immediate uh, moments of it. But uh, he tried to skid across the tracks going diagonally to buy even more time when he realized he wasn't going to make it. So the train hit the back corner of the bus and that's where most of the fatalities occurred. Um, and then that, you know, was a, that set in motion a whole sequence of things in terms of responding to the tragedy, what happened to the survivors, uh, because they were in various states of harm or injury. Mm -hmm. um, but that is, it, that's the short version of what happened. So what time of day was this? The mm -hmm. crash happened right around noon. Okay. In Round Rock. Um, okay. The area... It, it's uh, it's called May Street, and it's right next to the downtown area, which mm -hmm. the highway back then went through downtown Round Rock, and then took a left on May Street to go south toward Austin. Have you been to this intersection? Oh, yes, many times. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, first just to see it, um, but then there have been several events over the years um, that drew me there. One in particular was very rewarding, and this was about six years ago, I believe. The city of Round Rock, uh, in particular the man who was mayor then decided to honor the memory of the Immortal Ten, which had not really been central to the city's history mm. uh, because more or less they just considered it, those who remembered it, as something that was tragic and random. But it was an important event, you know, in Baylor's history and Texas history. And so um, the mayor wanted to rename the bridge that eventually became built over the railroad tracks on May Street. They wanted to rename it the Immortal Ten Bridge. And they invited all of the descendants of um, the families who lost their sons in that mm -hmm. accident, but also the survivors, the descendants of the survivors. So they had quite a crowd um, on place, in place. And it was meaningful to me because I had interviewed a number of those descendants, in particular of the survivors, um, on the phone. Mm -hmm. So I got to meet them in person, and it was very meaningful to them. So that was, um, I guess that's the last time I've been back to the site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, this is a era where there there was this an unmarked crossing, right? Yeah. It was an open grade crossing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the you know aspects that come, uh, one of the elements uh, that came out of this accident was legislation to create um, funding for highways to be uh, built over uh, underpasses or overpasses at railroad crossings. It didn't start happening until several years after the accident because of that being very expensive and it wasn't uniform. Of course, today you can see highways that go across, you know, level grade crossings like Highway 6 down in, um, you know, Hearn and such. But that was an initiative that came out of this to increase um, the safety of these uh, intersections. Um, sometimes you will hear in connection with the story that this is also the reason why uh, school buses had to come to a stop at crossings, but that's not accurate. Mm -hmm. That happened in the 1930s from another horrible bus accident with school kids. But um, yeah. the two are related, obviously. Yeah. But at these crossings like this were, I mean, that was, it wasn't unusual. I mean, it, it was rare to have collisions of this size, but, right. uh, but 
I know of several different cases where there were car, train kind of collisions at crossings like this. Correct. Yeah. Um, and it was just really a, a product, uh, as I, again, I said there was a lot of litigation that came out of this accident on from survivors' families uh, mm-hmm. and, and attempted to recoup losses from the university, which had an insurance policy, and also the train company, which was uh, part of the Missouri Pacific Rail Lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the, there were several that went to court. So you, that's where I found a lot of the details that I wrote into the narrative of uh, the moment. Um, and what happened in particular was it was cold and rainy. Uh, like I said, the visibility wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the student who was driving the bus, which was his student job, uh, he was an athlete, but he also you know, needed to make money for living expenses. Uh, his name was Joe Potter from West. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was not familiar with the highway at all. Um, mm-hmm. The coach, uh, his name was Ralph Wolf. He was familiar with it. And he was standing at the front of the bus looking for trains. But with the visibility being low and also uh, as, the court pr- uh, as the court proceedings showed, there was uh, a box car, a passenger car, and several box cars lined up on a siding that blocked their view okay. to the west. Mm-hmm. Um, and the railroads were found liable for that. Um, but the train was blowing its whistle. And in fact, there was a car that was traveling behind the bus um, and they were interviewed, you know, in newspapers and they said they heard the whistle. So for some reason, the people on the bus, the driver, the coach did not hear the whistle. And so it was only when they got far enough toward the tracks that they could see around the siding, the boxcars on the sidings that they saw the train coming. And at that point, um, based on the information that was in these lawsuits as to how close they were at that point, I figured out that they had, the driver had about four seconds to react, which is not much, although he was going pretty slow, but mm-hmm. he just decided he couldn't stop the bus uh, quickly enough given that short span of time. Um, the, the coach was the one who first saw it and he yelled out and then, you know, Joe Potter had to make this decision, but it was a split second decision. And, um, I have talked to people at Baylor who knew him. Um, he was like several of the uh, students that died. He was a member of the Baylor Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. which was a student organization, which mostly raised money for athletic events at the time. Um, but he would come back to homecoming over the years to see his fellow chambermen, but he would never talk about that day. It just haunted him. Mm. As you could understand, oh, it would. Yeah, um, yeah the um, other kind of recollections i would imagine many of these deaths were probably instantaneous with the collision that occurred yeah we can get into some more of the details of the accident for sure Um, and one thing that's good to for folks to know is when we talk about a bus it's not like a giant school bus of today Mm -hmm. it was uh, what called an reo parlor bus Mm -hmm. so it's more like a giant minivan Uh, it was about 25 feet long eight feet across it had room um, for about 22 people, which was the total that was on there uh, by the time the collision happened. Mm-hmm. Originally, there was only 21 passengers, but we can talk about that 22nd one because there's a very interesting story surrounding him. Uh, mm-hmm. His name is Ivy Foster Jr. Um, but it, um, you know, there were there were four rows of wicker chairs uh, and so four seats on each row, and then at the back. Um, there was a row, not a row anymore, more like a semicircle of four wicker chairs. And there were um, emergency exits on either side. Um, and it also had very large windows, which is a key element to one part of the story, too. Uh, but so when, the tra- when Joe Potter tried to beat the train across the tracks, the train, as I mentioned, hit the back rear corner. And that's where most of the students who died were sitting, mm-hmm. um, with one notable exception, a man named Ed Gooch. He was the only one who survived from that spot. Um, 
So when the train hit it, they immediately applied the brakes. It skidded about 300 yards along the tracks. It caught up the bus, and the bus was dragged for about 30 or 40 yards in the top of the bus. As you can see in this photograph I have, folks listening can't, but it was completely destroyed. The root, the top, and the sides were torn off of it. And so when the survivors started staggering around in the aftermath of the crash, they saw Baylor's, the, the green and gold jerseys scattered everywhere, wicker chairs everywhere, bodies piled up. Um, one relationship that we can get into some more detail on is uh, two students, um, Weir Washam and Clyde Abe Kelly. Abe was his nickname. These mm -hmm. were star athletes in Waco history. They played for Paul Tyson's football team at Waco High that won the first state championship there and then took that culture of excellence to Baylor, and it really turned the Baylor program around too. But um, they were two of the students. I mentioned Ed Gooch was in numbers five. I was wrong. Weir Washam also survived, but that's because at the very last second he jumped out of the window. At the oh, back. my goodness. Wow. And um, the reason that he could do that was because the window was all the way down, which you might think, why was the window down if it's so cold and rainy? Well, um, I talked to Ed Gooch's sons, and they told me that the reason it was down – was because Weir Washam and Ed Gooch were chewing tobacco and they needed a place to spit. So the window <laughs> was down. Um, and so in the moment of the crash, when they were angling across the, or about to get to the tracks, Weir Washam could see that, and he was standing next to the window, he could see that this train was coming and he just instinctively threw himself out of the window. Oh my gosh. Right. And so yeah. um, I mentioned these two were star athletes. They were also childhood friends, they were best friends. Mm. Um, and I did talk to Weir Washington's two sons, and he, they provided me with quite a bit of information about their father's experience and what he remembered of the accident. But when he landed in the dirt, it was very close to the tracks, about three feet. And when he looked up, he saw the cow catchers zooming past, and then he looked up to where the window was, and he could see his friend Abe Kelly trying to get out of the window, and that's the moment the train hit the bus. Wow. So a horrible thing to see. And he... Uh, after the collision, he went with some other students who were, a few were relatively uninjured, which is hard to believe, but they started mm -hmm. trying to tend to their classmates. Um, and Weir Washam immediately wanted to see what happened to Abe Kelly, so he just went down the tracks 300 yards. As the crew of the train was coming back toward him because they were coming back to help, um, but he eventually got to the front of the train and found his friend's body on the cow catcher along with two other students. So that was the violence of this collision. You can imagine at 60 miles an hour, um, uh, you know, a lot of mutilation. So that stayed with Weir Washam forever. But yeah. there's one, um, since we're talking about them, there's one key element of the story that does get handed down as a tradition, although I do not think it is factually accurate. Okay. And in the book, I try to handle this with kid gloves because it is such an important part of the story. Um, and also because no one truly knows what happened. But in the days, really the day afterward, you know, most of the major newspapers in the state covered this story, and they interviewed the survivors. And so there were different accounts of what happened from mostly three different survivors uh, as to what happened in the back of the bus with Abe Kelly and Weir Washam. Um, Lewis Slade, who was one of the survivors, said he saw Weir jump out and then Abe trying to jump out, and then the train hit them. Um, one of the other students named John Kane provided a story which the newspapers immediately picked on, which was that Abe Kelly um, was actually the one next to the window and Weir Washam was to his left because they were jumping out of the window to the right. Mm -hmm. 
but instead of jumping himself, he helped his best friend get out first, and then he tried and didn't fail. So, um, and Baylor's president at the time was Samuel Palmer Brooks, and he also repeated that story, um, believing it was true, um, I'm guessing, but the, um, you know, and so it it became the story of heroism and, and you know, giving up your life for somebody else, which you know, may have happened, but probably did not. And the reason I say that is because Lewis Slade's uh, account for one thing. And then also when I interviewed Weir Washington's sons, they both told me that their father said that didn't happen, mm-hmm. that he just jumped. It was instinctual. And he was next to the window, but he never said anything to counter that story because it was about his best friend. And he yeah. just stayed silent on that topic. But that is a central part of the story. And there's no reason not to celebrate the bonds of friendship like that. It's just uh, the book, uh, when for the purposes of the book, my whole goal was to write a well-researched, accurate narrative um, about what happened, just so people who want to know about the, the history um, can just read it. So it's not, a, it's not a book about the Immortal Tent. It is the story of the Immortal Tent. It's a narrative, um, which I wanted to write it that way so it'd be more compelling mm-hmm. than sort of an essay or something like that. But um, you, you could tell... You know, I think in the wake of great tragedy like this, you're you're trying to find a redeeming. I mean, you can understand why a story like that would would get legs and well, would, sure, would be something that you'd want to take from the event. Sure, and it goes right along with the name that was given the ten students yeah. the day after the wreck happened, which was the Immortal Ten. Mm-hmm. Um, that that phrase was used in a Waco newspaper, and sure, of course. Uh, people feeling that kind of grief want to eulogize the dead. They want to remember them in the best light possible. And mm-hmm. if there's a story of sacrificial heroism, that's going to stick. Yeah. Was it a, it was a Waco reporter that, that coined that term immortal 10. It was an article in the Waco paper. I don't remember okay. if the author was a reporter or someone writing, you know, sort of an op-ed kind of column for the day. There was okay. a lot of, um, commentary in local papers by different Baylor figures. A.J. Armstrong, who was the mm-hmm. leader of the Armstrong Browning Library, wrote and spoke ex- about the Immortal Ten. There were, you know, memorial services on the campus, too, for the, the Waco uh, students who died. So it was e- easy to see why that story would stick. Um, mm-hmm. Well, in, tell- in telling the story, there's, you know, the, the immediate events, and as you say, the really you know, the gruesome scene of immediately after the accident. So, so what happens after that as you kind of relate, as you discover this history? Right. And um, toward the end of the book, uh, because one of the things I wanted to do that no one had done in the book was to track down all the survivors. And mm-hmm. There were 12 of them. Uh, what did they go on to do with, the, with their lives after they were spared? Mm-hmm. Um, and toward the end of the book, I do make that point that there were basically two stories. There's the one that was public of eulogizing the dead, naming them the Immortal Ten. And then there was the story that those 12 survivors knew, which was one that was full of great sadness and unanswered questions and loss of Mm. close friends. Um, So in the immediate aftermath of the wreck, um, like I mentioned, the train crew came back, and this was a passenger train. So Mm. everyone on board was stayed on board, Mm -hmm. but the crew came out and then locals from Round Rock and the, and it happened very close to the station depot. So they all came out and started trying to, uh, see who was dead, who needed help. Um, there were six students who died immediately in the crash. Um, there were two who were deemed, uh, most severely injured, uh, fellow Wacoans, uh, William Winchester and Robert Hanna Jr., who were also very close friends. 
they were taken to Georgetown by um, automobiles right away to get treated. And they eventually died later that day, uh, about an hour later. Then all the rest who had survived along with, and again, it's, it's hard to contemplate this given today's uh, means of travel, but the, the next stop on that route was Taylor, which had more hospitals and medical care available than what was in Round Rock. So after about an hour, everyone who had survived the crash, as well as the bodies of the dead, including a box of body parts, was placed in the baggage car. They didn't want to put them on board the train with the passengers, so everyone just was put on the train, and about an hour after the collision, they were taken to Taylor. And there's another story that I initially thought was probably uh, an exaggeration or a made-up incident because it's one of those things that sounds unreal. But the people in Taylor had advance notice that this was coming, so a lot of the Mm. medical staff came to the train station prepared to transport the injured to hospitals and the dead bodies to a morgue. And one of the people who came to help was a local businessman who owned a laundry in Taylor. Um, And he was helping to unload one of the bodies that had a sheet on it. And when the sheet came off, he saw that it was his son, which immediately made him pass out more or less. And the friends who were around him helped him move away. But, um, and this goes back to, the circumstances of who was at the back of the bus and who lived, um, it just shows you, if you believe in fate, this is a moment of fate. So mm-hmm. that student's name was Ivy Foster Jr. Um, and he was an assistant sports editor at the for the Baylor Larry at the newspaper on campus. And he was traveling down to Austin um, to see the game. I don't know if he was supposed to report on it. And then he was going to go on a date that night and then see his parents the next day on Sunday and Taylor on his way back to Waco. But he, there was not enough room on the bus, or he d- wasn't initially planned to be on the bus, so he had started hi- hitchhiking to Austin. And in Waco, he got a ride from a businessman who took him to Temple, um, which was part of the highway to Austin. And so when the Baylor bus got to Temple, they saw this kid standing on the side of the road, and they immediately recognized him because, you know, Baylor was a small mm-hmm. – I mean, Baylor had an enrollment of about 1,000 students back then. So most people knew other people. And he was involved in sports as a reporter, so um, – they, uh, a fellow who was sitting in the back who I previously mentioned, Ed Gooch, um, he was also a freshman like Ivy Foster Jr. And he yelled out to, you know, pull over to the road. We need to pick him up. Um, and so when they picked him up, there wasn't an, any, the, the bus was completely full. And so for a few miles, he actually rode on the sideboard of the bus on the front. Oh, Again, the bus did not travel fast. It was about, you know, 20 miles an hour is what you were traveling but it was cold and rainy. And so eventually Ed Gooch told uh, the driver, Joe Potter, to stop and he would give up his seat so he could come in and sit. And so Ivy Foster sat in the row that was the second row from the front right behind Coach Ralph Wolf. And Ed Gooch went to the back of the bus, which was already full, but he just sat down on the floor or sat in a chair. And I mentioned he and we were washing were chewing tobacco. And um, that's why the window was down. Well, when the train hit the bus, Ed Gooch was you know, miraculously thrown free without any injury, and Ivy Foster was the only student on the bus uh, at the front of the bus who died, and that was from debris hitting him. So, you know, and Ed Gooch did have, he was also in the Chamber of Commerce, and he was, I believe, the only survivor who spoke to Baylor students who came back and spoke to them about it, and he did that a few times in chapel, and he, of course, you know, mentioned this as being something that 
you know, he felt horrible about because the person he gave a seat to ended up dying, but also um, blessed with life after that, you know, giving his seat up to someone. And um, so he just really, when he talked to Baylor students, that was primarily what he spoke about was viewing your life as a treasure, you know, and not Mm -hmm. taking anything for granted, trying to make the most of every day uh, that God gives you to live because you never know when it'll be over. And for him, it would have been had not this um, moment happened where they saw uh, Ivy Foster on the side of the road. Um, And then, you know, the loss uh, for a father to see his son dead, but he had no idea, you know, that Ivy Foster would have been on that bus. It was just out of the blue and such a tragic moment. Yeah, that's horrible. And so um, the the players that were transported to the hospital there, you mentioned the six died on the scene and two died. Right, and then two died in Taylor Okay. Um, later that day. Just internal injuries probably or... Yeah, yeah. right, Just internal mm. injuries. And then there were a few st- students who were pretty severely injured and they were hospitalized for several months in the case of one... Um, fellow named Wesley Bradshaw, and he was um, he was just a guest who was on the bus. He had been a football star for about four or five years before, and I think he was friends with the coaching staff. Um, but he his back was very severely injured, and one of the the lawsuit that went to trial that I was able to gather details of the accident from was resulting from Wesley Bradshaw's uh, lawsuit. Um, but yes, two of them died in Taylor. And the ones that were severely injured stayed there. But, um, and again, this is one of those things that wouldn't happen today, but uh, the four students who were relatively uninjured kept going back to Waco Mm. to go home to their dorms. You know, and they arrived in Waco around six that night. Uh, People were at the station to greet them, but um, I'm sure they were shell-shocked. Oh, yeah. And they, you know, went to their dorm rooms. The Waco papers, the newspaper reporters, you know, wanted to interview them, and they I think to a person did sit, you know, give interviews. The one in particular that I found most compelling was uh, Weir Washam. Um, you know, he was completely devastated. And to deal with that, he went to uh, where Abe Kelly lived. And Abe, Abe Kelly lived in a fire station that was near Baylor's campus. That's where he worked to, mm. to make money. And he also uh, boarded there. And so he went to the fire station and sat on his friend's bed, uh, just grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. The other thing that immediately happened was Baylor's administration, um, which was small back then in 1927, but President Brooks and the business manager immediately traveled to Georgetown, I mean, to um, to Taylor to oversee all the logistical details that might happen, to talk to parents who began arriving at the scene uh, for the students who survived, and to begin making arrangements or helping parents make arrangements for their son's funerals. Um, And one of the things that he immediately did was to create teams of 10 teams composed of two faculty members and two students to go to every student's funeral Mm. to represent Baylor there. And I believe also paid the costs of the funerals and burials. Oh, wow. And these were all, um, you you mentioned the Waco connections. These, These were all Texans. They were, and yeah. I, I should just run through their names and maybe a brief good. biography of them. Um, Please. Yeah. They, they were all, uh, uh, the, the, the dead students were all from Texas. Um, one student, one of the survivors who we should talk about at some point because he uh, had a very interesting story, he was from St. Louis. But um, Jack Castellaw was uh, from uh, Dallas area, 
and he actually the um, his mother afterward gave a gift to Baylor to create the Castellwell Communication Center in his honor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was a scorekeeper for the team. Um, there was Sam Dillo, and he was from Fort Worth. He was a, a team member. Uh, there was Merle Dudley. He was a second-year law student who was a Yale leader. Back then, Baylor had four Yale leaders who were all men, and he was the only one who volunteered to go to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, there was Ivy Foster Jr., who I've previously mentioned, being from Taylor, um, he was a sports editor for the Baylor Lariat. There was Robert Haley. Um, he was from Lott. Uh, he was a basketball player. And I should add here that most of these athletes were multi-sport athletes back then. They played football, mostly most of them primarily football. Then they also went on to play basketball and baseball usually. Some of them also did track. Um, Abe Kelly was a very talented athlete. He did all of those. Um, and Robert Haley also played. So a lot of these fellows were backups on the basketball team. Um, but the one that stands out in that regard was Robert Hanna Jr., who only played basketball. That was his love. And he was a returning starter um, and had made the starting ra- uh, rotation again in 1927 and was becoming more of a leader on the team. There was Clyde Kelly, whose nickname was Abe. That's how he was always referred to. Um, and he was from Waco. Robert Hanna Jr. also was from Waco, but his family had moved to St. Louis the previous year, um, and so they had to travel from St. Louis after the wreck. Mm. Um, there was Willis Murray. He was from Gatesville, and he was a uh, manager on the team. And then there was James Walker. Um, he was also from Gatesville, and he played football and basketball. He also uh, was a co- very competent track runner in distances. He ran a sub-430 mile, which mm. back in 1927, and even still today, is pretty pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And then there was William Winchester, who was also from Waco. Um, he was studying art history and French, very uh, scholarly young man. Um, he had a twin brother uh, and also a younger brother who were also Baylor students at the time. Um, so there were a lot of connections of friendship between these students who died. I mentioned Abe Kelly and Weir Washam, but William Winchester and Robert Hanna Jr. were also very close friends. And the previous summer, in fact, after the Hanna family moved to St. Louis, uh, Winchester went to visit them, and they corresponded quite a bit. And the family's uh, correspondence is part of the archives in the Texas collection that I drew from for, uh, you know, briefly to just show the impact of this collision because the two, uh, their parents became friends through their friendship, and they mm. maintained that even after this move to St. Louis. Um, but um, Mrs. Winchester and Mrs. Hanna corresponded quite a bit after the tragedy, trying to help each other grieve. And, uh, you know, this correspondence is very moving. Mm. Uh, But they had, the two families were very close. Um, There were other things, you know, I mentioned several were members of the Baylor Chamber of Commerce. So they they had a lot of connections with each other. And also the students who survived had those same um, connections, you know, being in chamber, uh, being on the team. Uh, Mm -hmm. You mentioned one of the things that you wanted to do with this book was that hadn't been done is, is pick up the story for, uh, the 12 that, that survived the accident. And so what, what are some of the stories that stood out to you from, like, you don't have to give the whole book away. <laughs> right. Sure. And it would take a while to go through yeah. all 12. So I will just hit the highlights. Yeah, what, but, are, what are some that kind of um, stand out to you? Well, you know, some as far as the immediate aftermath that stood out to me was just that sense of loss of mm-hmm. people who are friends, um, I mentioned William Winchester and Robert Hanna Jr. being close friends, but another fellow who was on the bus uh, and survived was named Kiefer Strickland, and he was very close friends with Robert Hanna. And uh, he had 
quite a bit of difficulty finishing that semester. Well, they were on the quarter system back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was some correspondence between him and Andres Sedon, who was a Spanish teacher for a long time at Baylor. Um, and he was really grieving, uh, which, I, you know, I couldn't find that necessarily for the other students who lived because they didn't leave records or I couldn't find them. But mm-hmm. um, eventually when he married, Kiefer Strickland named his son Robert Hannah Strickland oh, in wow. honor of his friend. The, um, the other survivors, um, which included Ralph Wolf, uh, but the other students all ended up graduating. Um, quite a number of them went into coaching careers, which you might expect. You know, and so they had an impact on hundreds of thousands of young men and women through their coaching. Um, two survivors in particular are interesting. Now, one is a student who I mentioned earlier, John Kane, who told the story of William, uh, sorry, he told the story of Weir Washington and Abe Kelly. Um, he went into a long career in the Air Force, and during World War II, uh, when he was in his 40s, by then he was the uh, commander of a bombing campaign in uh, over Romania to destroy some oil fields. And it was a attack that went horribly wrong, but because of his actions in managing that and getting his bombers out of harm's way as immediately as possible, even though they did have casualties, they were able to survive. And for that, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. I and think one of, we have a statue of, yes, of him over one of, the uh, stadium. Only yeah. two of Baylor's alumni have, re- have received the Medal of Honor, uh, John Kane is one of those. They were both athletes, too. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. And then Ralph Wolf, the coach who was the, he was the first-year coach back then. And, in fact, he almost didn't go on the trip to Austin because his wife was in her last days of a pregnancy. Um, but he was a first-year coach. Um, their season, even though they had thought it would go very well because they had all five starters back from the previous year, but their season had not started well. They'd lost their first three uh, games and at home even. And so this was their first road game of the season. He wasn't going to miss it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was obviously in charge at the scene of taking care of the students who lived, uh, of overseeing things. And he himself was not injured very m- badly. So he was able to do all of that. Um, but the thing that is interesting in him in terms of what he went on later to do, uh, he ta- he coached at Baylor for a long time, but he was also the mayor of Waco in 1953 when the tornado hit the city and uh, he was celebrated for his leadership during that difficult time and they honored him with a Ralph Wolf Day afterward. So uh, you talk about bad luck. Yeah, overseeing tragedy. Right. Wow. Mm -hmm. So he... uh, you mentioned he was he was a Waco mayor. Did did he stay at? How long did he coach at Baylor? How long did he stay on as coach at Baylor? I believe he stayed through the fifties. Okay. I know he eventually left to take another coaching position, mm-hmm. uh, but he he was a longtime coach at Baylor. Um, taught physical education and and obviously was involved in local government. And uh, mm-hmm. now you mentioned the the there were efforts. Uh, very soon after to memorialize, you know, that one of the things that has become part of the story is how we remember it and the ways in which it's remembered, which I think changes and grows over time. But uh, you talked about even early on, there were memorializations of it. Right. Primarily um, in the immediate wake, it was just the the more actual memorial Mm -hmm. services, one of which was held in Waco Hall, pardon me, one of which was held on Baylor's campus. Um, 
and was heavily attended. And that was for William Winchester, Robert Hanna Jr. and Abe Kelly, um, all three of whom are buried in Oak, Oakwood Cemetery, you know, mm. near Baylor. Um, that probably would have been in Mar- Mars McLean or something like that. Was yeah, I made a mistake yeah. saying Waco Hall because it, it wasn't, wasn't built until yet. 1930. Yeah. But that is actually related to how the, they were memorialized or didn't get memorialized. Um, immediately afterward, every year on the anniversary of the accident, there was a chapel service, a memorial service for about three years. And mm-hmm. then after that, it became recognized in the Baylor Lariat with a, kind of an advertisement remembering them. Mm-hmm. And then that just sort of faded away. And so it wasn't really until after World War II when Baylor's homecoming activities became uh, restarted and they added this freshman mass meeting as part of that. And they decided to tell the story of the Immortal Ten during that program that the tradition of the Immortal Ten became enmeshed in Baylor's ongoing life um, Mm -hmm. because it had been lost there for a while. And there was a a plaque that was put up on the Brooks Hall, the old Brooks Hall, Mm -hmm. because a lot of them lived in Brooks Hall, the, the Immortal Ten which was mainly an athletic hall at the time. So that for a long time, that was the only memorial, physical memorial. In 1935, when Mays Street was uh, built, when the bridge uh, for Mays Street was built in Round Rock, there was a plaque put at the base uh, honoring the Immortal Ten. And, and that was it for decades until 1996, when Baylor's student body president at the time, whose name is Chase Palmer, began an initiative to raise money to build statues on the campus. And Chase stayed on that project like a dog with a bone. He didn't let it go, and it, was only, it wasn't until 2007 that the statues were placed on the Baylor campus. So it required a lot of fundraising to get that done, um, but he was able to see you know, his dream come true. But in the, immediately after the accident, a lot of people wanted – to memorialize the 10 dead students. And there were a lot of proposals for that, one of which was to build an auditorium uh, in their honor. Mm. And Baylor needed an auditorium because uh, the Carroll Library and Chapel at the time had burned, and it had when it was re- rebuilt, the chapel part was not part of that. So on the campus in 1927, there was a building that was simply called the Temporary Chapel Building or something like that. But mm-hmm. that is where students had chapel. It's also where the basketball team practiced. And so Baylor had a real need for something like that. President Brooks was very receptive, but he was also skeptical that there would ever be enough money raised mm-hmm. for that. And that proved to be the case. Not It was, you know, the money didn't come around immediately. And then 1929 happens, the great, you know, great depression happens. And then what also happens though, was an attempt uh, from the leaders in Dallas to, uh, give Baylor a reason to relocate there. Yeah, lure lo- them away. A lot of money on the table. When that happened, the uh, citizens of Waco rallied around the university and to show that they valued the university, they raised quite a bit of money, and that was the, uh, the result of that was the building of Waco Hall, which then, so there was no, there wouldn't be no opportunity to build a memorial auditorium. That's why that project never happened, and so they were just more or less... Uh, forgotten like mm-hmm. uh, until you know the 1945 or 46 homecoming when the story started to become told and that has been a tradition that's continued ever since 19 the 1940s um, they don't call it the freshman mass meeting anymore it's just called mass meeting to be yeah. more inclusive but yeah. the story of the immortal 10 is told there and um, and then also a more recent uh, 
way of remembering them, which I think is fantastic, is Coach Scott Drew for the basketball team has this, the players wear jerseys with the Immortal Ten's name on the back f- for the home game that's closest to the date of the accident, mm-hmm. um, which always throws the broadcasters off. They have to explain why, you know, uh, Keontae George is wearing, uh, you know, has Winchester on the back of his jersey. But I think that's a really great way to honor the Immortal Ten and keeps the memory of them alive. The uh, You talked about telling the story since the, the 40s. Is the way the story is told kind of the same? I mean, has that been consistent? I have to confess to not yeah. having been to most of yeah, those. Yeah. Um, well, I know, I know you weren't <laughs> any in the 40s time. No, <laughs> I was. I was not. Yeah. Um, uh, my beard is gray, but I'm not that old. <laughs> uh, for a long time, uh, a Baylor alum named Neil Knighton did yeah. the story, and, mm-hmm. and I believe he presented it as um, sort of a narrative, and he just talked about the 10 students that died and mm-hmm. gave some sort of parting message you know, along the lines of a sermon maybe or a homily. Um, I'm not sure exactly how it's told today, and mm-hmm. I have to also confess that when I was a freshman, I did not go to the freshman <laughs> mass meeting so uh, I came to the story late, but I have a good reason for that. And that was because uh, that fall I was on a cross country team and we had practice at 6 a.m. every morning. And so I was asleep by nine or 10 <laughs> on a good day or otherwise doing homework. But uh, the mass meeting back then, if I remember right, was at midnight. So I was not, you know, I was in a different world. So, What are your thoughts on the memorial that's there now? Just the, the way in which that came together? I think it was really well done. Um, Obviously, having 10 people to represent was a bit of a challenge, but the sculptor did a, a great job, and I wasn't involved in any of the details on how they were going to do it, but they have four of uh, athletes that are, uh, or the students who died are represented in stand-alone statues, and then the back is a, a wall, like a bas-relief, uh, where they come out from the back of a mm-hmm. wall. So they're not life-size, they're a little smaller than that, but um, the likeness is pretty good. Uh, I did help provide photographs that I had gathered for the book uh, to the team that was working with the sculptor so that he could have good reference for the uh, the likeness. Um, and then they provided them with different uh, objects that connected to who they were. So uh, Ivy Foster Jr. has a reporter's notebook in his hand, and Merle Dudley has a uh, Yale leader's, uh, what's the, the like cone, megaphone? The megaphone, yeah, right. Yeah. So it, it's really well done. And having it right at the heart of campus, right yeah. next to Pat Neff, um, makes a great impression. Students walk past it every day. They might not stop and look, but uh, it is uh, a physical reminder of the tradition, which is what motivated Chase Palmer in the first place because he his thought as a student body president and knowing this tradition, having heard the story at the freshman mass meeting, his thought was that there needs to be something more than that. If this mm-hmm. is so important of a tradition, they need to be physically represented. And there is something to that that has an immediate impact on you. I think it's very powerful. Um, my my friend Clint Patterson attests that he was the body model for Abe. Is that right, Kelly? That's at the mm-hmm. front of the holding the basketball. At the right, holding the, the basketball. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. The one thing that one of the most challenging writing projects I've ever had uh, was after the money had been raised, we were building, you know, putting the sculptures in place. They needed a plaque on the back that told the story of the Immortal Ten, and so the people who were in Baylor's development office that were handling this project thought well who better to do that than the person who wrote the book so <laughs> they gave me a very strict word count uh, <laughs> you remember how many words it was yeah. i do not but probably <laughs> in the neighborhood of 150 is Re- really short. restrictive so yeah. i had to try to think what can i say factually that conveys 
some of the details of what happened and also has an emotional component to it of memorializing them. And I think I went through, you know, 18 or 19 drafts <laughs> of that, scrutinizing every word. Um, so, but that is something I'm proud of that if you walk by the memorial and you read the plaque in the back, those are my words. Well, if you're, <laughs> if you're listening to this on campus, walk over and see how good a job Todd did in, right. in distilling that. If there down. are any typos, don't let me know. <laughs> So how did you come to the project? Uh, you, you spent, you invested considerable time in doing this. So I'm just interested in how you came to it. Sure. Well, I have just a general love for Baylor history, mm-hmm. uh, in particular that time period, uh, the 1920s uh, in American history, but also at, a, at Baylor, um, because I've been long a fan of Samuel. P- <clears throat> I'd long been a fan of Samuel Palmer Brooks because he really made Baylor uh, changed it into a national university mm-hmm. from a regional university. And it was the last major thing that happened in his tenure. He ended up dying in 1931. Um, up until that, that his death, he was still dealing with litigation issues. So wow. um, I had been a fan of Baylor history. And I, at the time, um, well, it was before the book was written, but it was uh, I was the editor of the Baylor Line magazine for mm-hmm. 15 years. And we were coming up on the 75th anniversary of the accident. And so my staff and I, we brainstormed ideas on how to honor that. And I had seen different columns and small articles about the Immortal Ten, some of them in the Baylor Line magazine, such as a column by a man who said, like a lot of people, I should have been on the bus, but I wasn't that day. Mm -hmm. I was sort of skeptical of that thing, kind of thing. Um, Anyway, I eventually decided the best way to honor them would be to tell their story in a well-researched and accurate way mm-hmm. um, that didn't try to exaggerate anything, didn't euphemize anything, also went in deeply into the Abe Kelly, We Are Washam story that's so central. Yeah. Um, and it ended up being a pretty long article for the magazine uh, to tell that narrative, but it was incredibly well-received by our readers. And a year or so down the road, uh, the fellow who was the director of Baylor Press contacted me, and it's primarily a scholarly press, but they do have an imprint that does Baylor-related books, mm-hmm. and asked if I thought there would be an opportunity to expand the story I'd written by, you know, maybe 10,000 more words so it could be a small book. Mm-hmm. And I said, I sure can. And I sure, think Baylor, no Baylor people <laughs> would like that. Yeah. I also would love to, you know write a book about this that would be more lasting than just a magazine article. Uh, and that's when I turned to sort of the second part of my research that I had, had done for the article, but expanded on for the book, which was tracking down the 12 survivors to find out what they had done with their lives. And, you know, if they ever talked about the accident or not, and I knew some of them, you know, mentioned Ed Gooch who had come back to Baylor's campus. Um, another survivor who I knew quite a bit about um, was David Chevins, and that was because he taught in Baylor's journalism department for many years and uh, spoke on, about the wreck at times. But most of them, you know, just got their degrees and went out and, mm-hmm. you know, no one ever kept track of who they were. Um, and I, you know, sent out letters to alumni from that time period uh, and when, you know, they most of these folks would have been in their 80s and 90s, so I was really looking for a needle in a haystack, but I did get responses from a few people who led to one person and that person led to another. So eventually I was able to track down uh, all of them. The last one was the fellow I had mentioned earlier, Lewis Slade, um, and someone who has his cousin or the son of a cousin 
somehow got one of those letters that I sent out and he called me. And so I was able to find out and that happened only about a week before our deadline. Oh, for wow. the I was so uh, stressed about not having all of 12. I only had 11. Um, <laughs> but Lewis Slade was originally from Uvalde. His father, uh, like a lot of people in that area, were into ranching kind of cowboy stuff. And he ended up, I thought, very interestingly, becoming one of the United States' best saddle makers. Hmm. And he learned his trade from his, uh, from his father, I believe, or another shop in Uvalde, but then went on to some of the major saddle making companies in America and Arizona and Oregon. And, uh, so that was his story. Yeah. Well, it's amazing that, I mean, you know, those lives were not lives fro- frozen in time. And so you, you kind of released a fuller story of, of who those individuals were. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I mentioned earlier, the mayor of Round Rock wanting to honor the mm-hmm. moral 10, but he, uh, also was quite interested in the 12 survivors. And mm-hmm. he, when I talked to him at one point, he said, really, I mean, obviously the story, the main story is about the 10 students who died, you know, at the beginning of their adult lives and the, mm-hmm. the sorrow of that. But the story of the 12 survivors is really just as important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why he went to the extent of trying to reach out to all of them, and invite them to come to Round Rock for that dedication event. Mm-hmm. Uh, Todd, you know, having spent as much time with the story as you have, I mean, what are the things that kind of, I think you've, you've hinted at it, but what are the st- things that kind of stick with you about the story of the Immortal Ten? Sure. I get asked that quite a bit mm-hmm. sometimes when newspapers or other people want to interview me around the time of the uh, accident. So over the years, I've sort of come down to two or three main things because it is logical or natural to ask why after almost a hundred years, are they being remembered? Mm -hmm. There are other similar tragedies. Um, We've lost other students. Um, But this was such a impactful accident that it left a deep mark in the university's life at the time. Um, But I think the reason to continue to tell their story and to have uh, that tradition be part of Baylor is that it really embodies the Baylor spirit Mm. uh, just as it was in 1927 and as it is today. And I think having their story shared every year at homecoming and having the presence of their statues on the campus represents that sense of community and compassion that flows through the Baylor family, that Mm -hmm. we are a community that takes care of each other and the way the families of the dead students and the way the students who survived went on to remember their friends they'd lost that, that, continues today among our students and that, you know, we are all part of this Baylor family and it goes back generations and generations and, and it's united. There's a phrase at Baylor, that good old Baylor line, you know, that is part of the school song and people don't really think about what that means, but what it's supposed to mean is the line of alumni from now stretching all the way back, you know, to the 1840s. And um, so the mortal 10 are part of the Baylor line. Mm. And I think also, you know, this was more, part of the memorization of uh, this was more a part of how they were memorialized in the, in the 1920s and the early thirties. But from a Christian perspective, you know, they are all part of the body of Christ that continues today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a way to honor that as well. Um, Baylor is a Christian university, obviously. So that is relevant. And then I think the last thing that's, um, that makes an impression on the current Baylor students is it is a, it is a story uh, to, shock you into understanding the blessing that you have of existence. It it is not given, you know, every, any day could be our last day, just like it was for those 10 students that might sound morbid, but it is also a way to 
view your life as a treasure that was given to you by God and which you should do everything you can to make it matter you know, every day. I mean, we can't do amazing things every day, but we should remember that, that every day is, is a gift. It's not something that we should take for granted. And I think that really, and that is something that the presenters at the mass meeting talk about because it is um, a message to your students to, to of today to make the most of your Baylor education and make the most of your potential to live to your fullest. And that ended up, you know, being, I mentioned that President Brooks died in 1931. He died about a week before the graduation ceremony. And so he was not going to be able to give the commencement charge. So he dictated uh, his message to one of his fellow administrators that was read at the graduation ceremony. And it has since become known as the immortal message. And I provide that at the end of my book because I think they are linked not just by the word immortal, but I think that his message in that speech came from his experience as being the leader of the university when this tragedy happened four years earlier. And that is, you know, he says famously said to the seniors of the past and the seniors of today and the seniors of tomorrow, um, have a care for Baylor, make this university the great university that it can, and don't have fear, have courage, you know, achieve what you can in life. And I believe that the tragedy of the Immortal Ten and the message of the Immortal Message are very linked together, and that message is you know shared today too with the students. Like mm-hmm. I just mentioned, you know, make the most of your life. Yeah, and I think the the fact that the tradition was for first year students to hear that. I mean that that moment in life that's such a vapor and goes by so quickly to make the most of it. Uh, you know, I do think that's that's part of what this the meaning of the of the retelling of the story. I think you're right. And, you know, there are years in your life that can be very uh, rich and momentous. And I think freshman year of college is that for a lot of students. I know that was my experience. Uh, I've had sons who have gone to Baylor. And you end up making lifelong friends just by chance of being roommates or on the same floor of a dorm. Um, And it is such a wealthy time of events and activity that, there's so much that happened your freshman year. And so it's a very good message for freshmen to hear. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really appreciate the work you put into this. I, I will say, uh, uh, Todd's book is available at the bookstore. I know it's a standard at the Baylor bookstore. Uh, if you would like to pick up a copy other places, it's available in town. I don't think in town. Okay. I'd like it to be at more okay. places. Yeah. I know sometimes fabled has copies okay. of it. Um, but you can obviously always buy it online too at Amazon yeah. Yeah. anywhere else. Todd will sign it for you if I he sees you. Will. All right. okay. <laughs> definitely will. Yeah. Todd, I really appreciate you uh, revisiting this work you did and coming on the podcast with us. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. This has been a Rogue Media Network production. Thank you.